Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a very special guest today, Amber Smith. You're a pilot, right? Or were a pilot? Or do yes. you still do that? Not really. Why not? I did it when I was in the army. I've right. been out of the army for a good minute. I go up every now and then, but it's for fun, just mm. recreationally. And you fly what? Blackhawks? Are you did fly Blackhawks in the military? No. Or what would you fly? No, 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 no. Kiowa? Yes. Kiowa? Yes. Little Kiowa warrior. How'd you get into that? Just out of curiosity. So I grew up in a family of pilots. I have a long lineage of mil like a military mm. family dating back to World War One. And then my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps in World War II. Uh, he flew some helicopter prototypes, but mostly fixed wing between Northern Africa mm. and Europe. And then my dad became a pilot for Pan Am. And my mom was a civilian pilot. And so we just grew up around aviation and absolutely loved it. And then after 9-11 happened, I was in college and didn't really know what I wanted to do, but loved aviation, loved the military, and ended up looking into military flight programs, and the Army had the perfect one for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I almost didn't get Kiowas, but thankfully it ended up working out because I got a totally right. different military I mean, experience. you can end up as a drone operator, too, in that pipeline, right? I mean, it, it was kind of rare back yeah. in my day. Like, it was just starting to come about. Mm -hmm. But now, yes, absolutely. And actually, when they replaced the Kiowa, in 2017, they tried to replace him with a shadow UAV and tried to pair him with Apaches, which didn't work out so well. But uh, yeah, nowadays, that's definitely an option. Yeah, that would suck to go through all that, hoping to be a jet or helicopter pilot or something, and you end up in a, uh, in a Connex north of Las Vegas. I do think they're two completely different tracks mm. now. Yeah. Like, I think if you're going to go to the like physical helicopter pilots like going to flight school like in rucker yeah. yes that's different than if you are going more of the like technical um drone uav side of things well, for, so what, what year did you go in i was 03 to 10 okay um <clears throat> explain to me the process for you so i mean you go through whatever basic training and then yeah. do you go to ocs after that and then you go to rucker how does it work so i was a warrant officer mm -hmm. So a little different than enlisted or mm. regular officer. So for me, I did the program that's called sort of street to seat or mm. high school to flight school. And it means you just don't have a prior military experience because a lot of warrant officers for the Army Rotary program, mm. they're prior enlisted and then they put their warrant officer flight packet in and then that's their path. For me, I went straight in from college. So yes, my track was basic training. Warrant officer candidate school, straight into flight school, and then, you know, a year and a half later, arrive at your unit. I went to 217 Cavett, Fort Campbell, 101st Airborne Division. Well, they're not really airborne. Let's be clear about that, right? Oh, so I think I know where you were, right? Yeah, you can guess. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so tell me more about uh, what the Kiowa does in operational theater, because I'm not, we, we didn't really use them that much, to be honest. What, we, what were you? What was I was in infantry in the 82nd Airborne. Okay. So... Well, we worked with the infantry. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And um, 82nd had uh, a Kiowa unit there as well. So we worked in Iraq or Afghanistan. <laughs> we are direct support for the ground force. So mm -hmm. we work with... Um, like fire support or what? So... Surveillance? What are you doing? We do, I mean, everything. Mm -hmm. We do convoy security. We hunt for IEDs or roadside bombs. We do medevac escorts we do our own rns like uh, reconnaissance mm. and security where we're searching for the enemy just solo without sort of a ground attachment or we'll go in and check into an infantry area of operation and then you guys would give us some um areas of interest mm. or suspicious activity mm. tell us grids or um approximate locations and then we go sort of inspect it but one of our biggest jobs is troops in contact. So when the ground guys are in a firefight with the enemy, they call us in and we have a 50 count machine gun. Mm -hmm. We carry rockets and we can carry hellfires. So what, what, like two and two and a, two and three quarter rockets or what are you carrying? 2.75. Two point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's three quarters. 
Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we call yeah, them 2.75. Yeah, um, yeah. That's uh, so what, what's the typical loadout then? I guess it depends we on what your preferred, office is. It depends on like your <clears throat> area of operation. My troop always preferred 50 rocket. Mm. Sometimes we had rocket, rocket birds. Uh, some rocket, rocket is tough. I well, mean, you, you only, you, you, there's a limited window that you can do stuff in, right? Well, at that point. And you just, can run out fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. When you have a 50 cal, you can sort of, I mean, you can also run out quickly with mm -hmm. the 50 cal, but you can do short bursts and mm -hmm. it just it lasts a little bit longer. The rocket rocket is okay, but like I would always prefer 50. Um, and you're just able to like be more accurate. Is there a main gun or is it a door gunner? No, it's in a, it's a fixed. It's a main gun on, yeah. a, on a Kiowa. Mm -hmm. What about uh, We only have two. So we only have the co-pilot and the pilot. It's only the two of us. So there's no like low there's no crew chief, no. just interesting. Us. Um, and so no many guns. I mean, many gun is always. I just like no the way it gun. sounds, to be honest. No, I know it sounds it's disappointing. great. <laughs> disappointing. Um, hey, I like the fifty cal. Took care of us. Yeah, I mean that sound. I like that sound too, but it's nothing like uh, like the A10. It like beats you up when you're like heart. yeah yeah sitting right next to it. Yeah. But the A10 is near and dear to my heart. The Burt sound of the what is it, 30 caliber mm -hmm. uh, main gun and a mini gun. It just sounds like goddamn chaos. You know what I mean? There's something uh, yeah. very intimidating for the enemy about that particular sound. I think um, uh, I've never used Kiowas in a tick before. I don't think really? maybe maybe once. I didn't really look up to see what kind of birds they were. We we did what, some strafing were you across Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq. We were so yeah. we were in Sadr City during okay. the surge. So it was seven to eight. Time yeah, period. you probably worked more with Apaches. Mm -hmm. We were just um, <clears throat> when I was in Iraq was 05 and 06, and we were just north. We were like um, Bakuba, mm -hmm. Balad, like that area. So we like we would like at night you could see the lights, but we usually didn't go down there. Um. Interesting. Well, tell me, tell me some stories about your experience in war because everybody's got some. They're all a little bit different. I don't know that I've heard a lot from helicopter pilots. Um, it could be a kind of a. I mean, if you're a Blackhawk pilot, it can be. It, it's probably more like the infantry job where it's ninety five percent monotonous bullshit, and then every now and again it sucks. So no, for us, uh, our job is not monotonous at all. It's chaos and like the entire mission block that you have, uh, I just feel like you always get into something. But we fly, that's what I think makes the Kiowa a little bit different, mm -hmm. is we don't have a ring route mission. We don't have no. um, an air assault mission. Like sometimes we provide overwatch and security for an air assault, but we go out sort of proactively looking for things. Um, and when you do that, I feel like you often get into trouble and find sure, some yeah. things that you're looking for. So it was always busy for us. I I mean, yeah, every now and then you had like a day where kind of nothing happened, mm -hmm. but that was more of a rarity. Like it was, you know, finding an I ID, um, like providing security ahead of a convoy and a complex attack happens or night missions and, you know, a small little cop or is getting attacked mm -hmm. and you fly into just like, you know, trace arounds mm. and all of that. So for Kiowa pilots, it was not boring. <clears throat> um, and you, uh, you said you got out in 2010. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to leave? So I had a couple reasons. I had done the like year on, year off sort of deployment mm. cycle for my 20s. And I joined the military to serve my country and fly. And I felt like I accomplished both of those things. I was in for over seven and a half years. And we were still sort of on that schedule. And I wanted to see what else was out there. So my entire adult life, like that's basically mm -hmm. what I had been doing. So my contract was coming up and just made the decision to get out. Well, so for like fixed wing aircraft, is there a point where, uh, so like the, the reason I left is because in the infantry, once you reach a certain rank, then you don't get to fight anymore. You mm -hmm. know, it's just like administrative bullshit yeah. for the most part, unless you're in a special operations unit. Um, and I know some pilots kind of n not age out, but rank out. Like at some point you got to go do big boy work and you can't play with toys anymore. Is it the same thing for helicopter pilots? Not for warrants. For warrants, right? Like you can go through 
for warrants. That's why, like, you have a lot of commission officers mm. that get to <clears throat> aviation and they're like, why, why would I not switch to be a warrant? Because you do get to fly more like you're always going to have more hours as a warrant officer mm. than you do a commission officer because they usually like only make their minimums and then they're doing sort of the leadership yeah. command track that and sucks man i mean that's a, that's a lot of work to fly for a one to three maybe five years if you're lucky and then yeah. go back and do paperwork Fuck that. it is it's a big complaint and flying like aside from flying an aircraft like add all the mission stuff mm. on top of it uh it's a lot to um stay like you need the practice to stay yeah. good at it so <clears throat> yeah the that was a big complaint with those guys but for warrants no you come in you fly yeah you have additional duties that bog you down with the most like bureaucratic type work that you have to do but for the most part you are flying that's your primary job and you can do that all the way up to cw5 if you yeah. stay in eventually they transfer you to uh, a battalion or a brigade job so you are still you you kind of you're definitely going to have less flight hours mm -hmm. then, but still different. CW5 is like uh, a white rhino, isn't it? It's like mythic. Not know. in aviation, though. Well, no, I guess not. That's yeah. the only place you ever really find them. Sometimes, I guess, um, some tier one units, you see them every now and again. Just there are some ground warrant, walking warrants. That's yeah. what we call them, walking warrants. Uh, but yeah, they're very rare. <laughs> It's that that's like the most dangerous person in the world because they <laughs> everybody's scared of a walking warrant. Oh, I, I think and it's I don't awesome. get it. I, well, it's because yeah. they don't know. The only people that are actually scared of them are upper command because they know they can't control them. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what that's yeah. what it really is. Like enlisted people are not afraid of them. They think they're awesome. That's the dream. It's like, oh, you're kind of in this weird middle ground away from the institutional flagpole, for lack of a better phrase, where you can do whatever the fuck you want. Nobody mm -hmm. knows who you report to. It's like it's like the it's way more of a sham shield than being an E4. That's for sure. Yeah, I kind of have mixed thoughts about how the Army does flight warrants versus the way the Air Force does mm. um, their flight <coughs> programs, where everybody's commissioned and then they yeah. have sort of tracks where it's like you can go the leadership command track or you can stay sort of a pilot track, mm. which is more similar to the way warrants are in the military. But I guess they're just sort of different dynamics for the way the unit is run. Well, the Navy does a lot of weird stuff. Like they sure do. Hiring uh, drag queens to make recruitment commercials, <laughs> for example, which it seems um, that seems like maybe a marketing mistake, but time will tell, I guess. Right? It it's not only a marketing mistake; it's a recruitment failure, mm. and the fact that the military leadership is so lost. <laughs> in the purpose of the military and who they are trying to attract to join the military and fight to defend our military. I think it says a lot at the like dangerous state our military, not just the Navy, but the military as a whole is right now. It's it's pretty telling. Yeah. So I what I hear from these statements that are put out by the, you know, um, the PR people, if you want to call them that, is that they want the military to more closely reflect American society. But that's not really the point of the goddamn military, right? The point is to defend the country. So I guess maybe <clears throat> I know I'm playing. I know you don't hold this position, but I'm curious your thoughts on what exactly it is that drag queens bring to the table that is going to be useful in combat. Nothing. They yeah. bring I, – I, it is uh, – the military does not need to be a reflection of American society. In fact, at this point, it should be better. And we don't need to say, okay, we're going to have, you know, this type of flight crew. Like, is that where we're going? Yeah. Where we have to say we have to have a certain demographic of every American representation on a flight crew or an infantry squad? Like, is that really what the military wants to go to? Because then that means the mission is to reflect society. Mm. The mission is not then to protect the country. And they need to get back to basics and remember what they're there to do. Yeah, and yeah, sadly, yeah. I mean, it's the crazy. military's mission is not just to go and fight and win wars. Mm. It's also a deterrent. It is a it is put in place to deter our adversaries from making very bad decisions that would then 
inflict the might of the U.S. military on them. And sadly, that deterrent part is no longer there. When our adversaries, when Russia and China... Just openly mocking us yes, at this point. Yes, and they see... Um, the United States military hiring drag queens yeah. to recruit uh, mm. um, young Americans. That is not the best reflection of our military. And sadly, there are so many amazing people serving in the military. And that is what they choose to represent. Like um, selecting drag queens mm. is what they choose to represent them. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. It seems like it would be a, quite a bit more useful, uh, effective even, Um to project to the to the broader population that the civilian population should live up to the standard of the military and not that the military should co-opt whatever stupid shit is going on in social culture at the time, right? Yeah, they need to stop chasing, uh, you know, what the latest um, social drama is. It's the, the military needs to rise above sort of the, like, way that – everything that sort of ebbs and flows in society in terms of like all of the social justice type stuff. Like the military needs to rise above that mm. and not get involved in it. And we've seen sort of um, the the willingness to not only acknowledge it, but sort of accept it. There was a, a cartoon recruitment ad and I believe it was for the army and it showed a same sex couple that was getting married and the daughter wanted to join the military because she wanted to be an activist in the ranks of the military and sort of be a trailbra a trailblazer. And it's like, what does that have to do with serving the country? Once again, it like comes back to a very basic question. Does whatever the military is focusing on, whatever they're doing, does it make the military a more lethal fighting force? And if the answer is no, then they need to go back to what does make the military a more lethal fighting force. And that's obviously not a question that they're yeah, focused yeah. on. No, it's uh, – uh, so any company, any successful company is going to have a mission statement, right? And the purpose of the mission statement is the – to be the guidestone, to be the true north. Anytime you're making a decision about something, does my decision and the outcome of that decision support the mission? That's the point, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like um, <clears throat> when I was VP of marketing of Black Rifle, the mission statement was we serve coffee and culture to people who love America. So as, as a marketing VP, you know, we're spending millions of dollars advertising on different platforms, making uh, videos and shit like that. It's like there's a lot of there's a lot of wiggle room in there, right? To do creative things and fun things and stuff, serious stuff as well. But if you know, if you're ever wondering, is this a good idea for us to do this? You just kind of go back and say, is what I'm doing supporting that mission, right? And that's why you condense it down into a single sentence, right? Make it really simple. Now, uh, to your point, the mission statement of the military is to protect the country, right? Whether it's in as a deterrent or a kinetic force, right? Uh, and I just can't imagine why somebody would think that social justice activism inside of its ranks makes sense. This intersectional, retarded bullshit that's been going on in Western culture for the past however many decades now. Um, the The purpose of it is to turn people into uh, uh, individuals concerned about their own plight, but that is exactly the opposite of what the military is all about. It isn't to say like as, as leaders, we take care of our people and we put people first because we, because we realize our greatest asset is our people. Right. But that individual buys into the idea that it's not about me. Like I'm doing this for the good of the team, the good of the mission, the good of the country, so on and so forth. So we're making decisions now <clears throat> that are completely antithetical to any business or military force. It seems insane to me. I can't figure out why people are doing this. Well, I, I do think it's because big recruiting decisions um, and a lot of these policies, uh, they're being pushed down on the units that are actually fighting in these wars. Um, the like actual operational side mm. of the military, but these horrible decisions um, that is really damaging morale of those operational uh, units. 
are being made at the top. And at the top, so SECDEF level, um, undersecretary, assistant secretary levels are so far disconnected from the military that we think of when we say mm. the military. So they're <laughs> policymakers at the top. And it's they get a PowerPoint presentation put in front of them when we're when they say, well, we want a, a DEI, diversity, mm. equity and inclusion policy that's going to reflect everyone and make us look more like America. So if somebody does up a fancy PowerPoint presentation and, and gives it to, you know, whoever signs off on those policies, it looks so great. They're like, yes, this is going to make the military better. They then, you know put the memos down to the operational level who are already bogged down on so much training, mm. um, so much online stuff where they have to sit in front of a computer for hours in a week. That's taking them away from the range. That's taking them away from the field. That's taking flight hours away or, but that requirement's still there. Mm. So then they are having to cram everything in. We've seen aviation acts accidents rise mm -hmm. over the past year, <clears throat> class A fatal accidents, destroying helicopters. And all of this training that is hurting morale is being forced on the operational troops that are still having to fight and tr have to train to fight. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's a significant disconnect between the leaders who are making the decisions in Washington, D.C., in air conditioning buildings, and the people who are down at the Fort Braggs, the Fort Campbell, Camp Pendleton, like those people um, working every day, still mm. deploying. Um, and they're the, the ones that are having to live it. And it's killing morale because they're saying, I don't care if the guy next to me <clears throat> looks like me or is a woman or is LGBTQ. I don't care. Can that person shoot a gun yeah, at the yeah. enemy and help me if I get shot and pull me back to safety? Yeah. That's what I care about. Yeah, we so... Um in the infantry, as I, I'm sure it's the same in all infantry units, but especially in, in paratroopers, we're just fucking kind of crazy. Uh, we're going to make fun of you no matter what you have going on in your life. If you're super religious, we're making fun of you for that. If you're gay, we're making fun of you for that. If you're black, if you're a redneck from Alabama, we're making fun of you. It's just the way it is, mm -hmm. right? Because nobody gives a shit about any of that. Like you said, it's just about competency can you go fucking kill people with us yes and uh, it's like it's the, uh morale and unit cohesion is built off of people being together mm. for a common mission and knowing that the per person to their left and to the right are able to do the same thing that they are but also that they've been through the same sort of level of suck like mm. you've been through that training you didn't get standards lowered for you you had to do the exact same thing i did you start taking some of that stuff away, that starts creating resentment because mm -hmm. then people are like, oh, you're here because of this reason. Yeah, you're you're here because higher, you yeah. didn't have to do as many whatever as I did. <clears throat> and then that's like, okay, so uh, I don't like that because mm -hmm. I was held to a standard. I had to do something that you don't. So once again, policies causing problems in uh, the lower level ranks where that unit cohesion and morale is everything. Yeah, it's uh, Hemingway wrote about this principle in The Snows of Kilimanjaro uh, about, um, I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, but it's something like, um, we could work, we could we could burn the fat off our souls um, like, a, like a fighter going into the mountains to train, right? It's like all the pretense the posturing is all stripped away and it comes down to meritocratic performance. We all, we yes. all suffer together, right? We all succeed together. And that's kind of the point. Um, and it's the, like every basic training, every selection process of any kind is primarily designed to see if you're going to quit or not. Right. And that's the only thing that really matters. You can train a monkey to shoot a gun, but are you going to quit when your team needs you? Exactly. And, you know, people that are, um, <clears throat> People that are primarily focused on themselves and their own plight in life, they're going to quit. As soon as the opportunity arises, they're going to quit. Mm -hmm. And that's why we structure things the way we do. Um, it, it is it, the, the bizarre part about it for me now is that our upper command 
which is to say the sec def and the joint chief specifically are both combat veterans many times over. I mean, Millie, you're talking about all the way back to Panama. He was in the invasion, right? Of Panama. So he jumped into that. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously the nineties were a little bit quieter, but, um, uh, Austin Lloyd Austin as well was, was part of some of these operations has been in command throughout the entire global war on terror. They know what it takes to win, but they're doing the opposite. They're, they're recommending the opposite I, that part. I don't understand. Well, now, you, being... I, you, you've worked in, uh, the defense department before, right? I have. Yes. Under the Trump administration. Okay. So respond to that first and then kind of give me some insight about your time there. I'm sure it was quite a bit different with Trump in office than it is now, obviously, but well, there's still like uh, career politicians in military uniform, and that's always been the case, right? At least since I've been alive, even back in the 80s. It's and been shit. what? Uh, <clears throat> it's been the case that once you cross over like 06, 05 or so, you become oh, a politician, yes, yes. right? That's kind of how it so, is. This episode of Citizens is also brought to you by Ghostbed dot com forward slash drinking bros right now ghostbed is offering 40 percent off ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base for everything else 30 percent off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros if you get the uh 40 off deal if you use the 40 off bundle deal you're gonna get uh, a mattress and all your stuff your base your sheets your pillows all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month They've got a zero down, zero percent financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you. Works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinking bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best. The mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. This episode is also brought to you by First Form. Firstform.com forward slash drinking bros. The product they really want you using is the micro factor. It's a complete daily nutrient pack. Now, what's in it? Antioxidants, CoQ10, great for heart health, multivitamins. Uh, greens and reds, which is to say fruits and veggies, then EFA, which is to say fats that you need. And then they got a probiotic in there as well. It's an easy little packet. You just dump it all in your fucking mouth and swallow, uh, probably with some liquid, preferably water. Um, they got all kinds of other great products as well. Uh, talking about those meat sticks, the breakfast sausages meat stick is the best thing I've ever had in my life. And of course, they have energy drinks. They've got all kinds of stuff over there. They got great protein, the best supplements on the market if you spend over 75 bucks you're going to get free shipping so go to firstform.com forward slash drinking bros and get those deals to your question about millie and uh austin is they well i actually think they're two separate examples mm. millie is extremely political. And if you look at his comments from the Trump administration forward, uh, he is very concerned about Millie's brand, Millie's mm. image, and really the job that he is going to get after he retires. And he's announced his retirement for this fall. And I keep saying, like, I cannot wait to see what he lands after. Well, you know what it's going to be. Like every former <laughs> after he retires, every, every every former sec def and every former joint chief ends up in a consulting company that works for countries like fucking Saudi Arabia and UAE and shit. Almost every one of them. As a matter uh, of fact, he's going to land at some board on oh, yeah. you know the <laughs> Raytheon, big or somebody primes, like that. yeah, defense primes, making millions of dollars. Um, but he so he thinks when he. Uh, when he walked to that church and they mm. had that big photo op when yeah. he was with President Trump and uh, a lot of cabinet members, uh, he thinks that that definitely hurt his image. And you can see, if you sort of read up on the shift that happened after that, he instantly went to the other side. Mm. Uh, and I just think it is 
a horrible example for the military to be so political. Mm -hmm. Everybody used to talk about in Washington, D.C., you can always count on the Department of Defense because it's apolitical. Uh, it's a it's a non-political institution that could that is so far from the truth and from reality. The Department of Defense is so political. Yeah, yeah, that's it crazy. is so yeah. political, and all of its leaders at the top are uh, they don't put the best interest of the military first. Mm. They put the best interest of themselves and their job mm -hmm. and their next step first. That's what comes first. And you see that, how it's played out, especially uh, lately with the Biden administration and the executive orders that he put out soon after being sworn in as president and just reversed so much of the work and the policies that the Trump administration had put in to sort of try to rebuild the military mm -hmm. and, and turning it back into. Do you have examples? Because you were there at the time as a PA for some of this stuff. So what, what kind of stuff? Yeah. Just so a as lot a reminder of the, the DEI. Type stuff. It wasn't really, it was called inclusion back during mm. the Obama administration. But that's really like 2012, even 2010 is really when Obama started uh, pushing some of those policies into Department of Defense. And it didn't get much notice. Um, it was, it was just quieter back then. And, uh, but we're seeing the effects of it today, mm. which is why now there is this big outcry. But this isn't something that happened overnight. It has been in the works for years and years and years. Um, the Trump administration caught some of it um, towards the second half to the end of the administration. Mm. But as with anything in government, it takes time. The Department of Defense is a massive, yeah. it's not just the military, it is a massive government bureaucracy. So it is so much work to culturally shift an organization that has been in a mindset for so long. Uh, and so Secretary Carter, 2015, the end of 2015, he lifted the ban on women in combat positions, mm -hmm. uh, which came, uh, which was made official early 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a two-year study done on women joining um, these combat positions. So before the ban was lifted, uh, women could only serve in, in non-combat positions, mm. except for aviation. Right. Um, and But they couldn't be in the infantry. They couldn't be in special forces or any sort of special operations or um, marine infantry, that type of stuff. So after the ban was lifted, women could then try out. After this study, each service was allowed to file for an exemption, like mm. if they want, if they did not want to be a part of this. The Marine Corps was the only branch that said we want an exemption. Mm. General Dumford at the time, uh, I believe was the commandant, and he uh, said, no, we all fight together, so I'm going to ignore your request, and we're all going to now open the door to women and all on all uh, combat operations. So I am like, I write a lot on this issue. I talk a lot on this issue. I strongly believe in a physical mission standard versus a gender standard mm -hmm. for everything that we talked about before with morale, unit cohesion, whatever. I do think that the doors should be open to women in terms of being allowed to try out. I strongly disagree in any sort of lowered standard, any sort of quotas, any sort of special treatment. But sadly, the military has shown that they can't handle that. They can't handle, let's open the doors and allow women to try out with no guarantee of any sort of, um, you know, guarantee of making it. Yeah. Um, but instead, they saw that, like, even with the latest Army physical fitness test, they tried to do a gender neutral and age neutral test. The majority of women failed it. Mm -hmm. And so the secretary of the mm -hmm. army said, we're going to lose women in recruitment. We're going to lose women in retention. We need to go back to a gender based test. So they did. So instead of requiring women to meet that standard, they then lowered the standard. I have a problem with that. That's not well, putting. Well, it's fucked, right? So nobody thought they could run a four minute mile until somebody did it. Right. And then everybody started doing it. There's thousands of people now who have that ability. And 
No, uh, if you look at the um, the Jesse Owens, um, I think it's nineteen what was it nineteen thirty four Olympics mm-hmm. where he went to Germany and fucked everybody so. up. If you watch the highlights from that, what you'll know, you'll see like the high jump, and it's like six feet. Yeah, and that's nowhere close to what people can do now. So you know, we're human beings. Uh, uh, if I mean the 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 way that I would have put that is that hey, you're failing, so you got to get better not you're failing so we're going to lower the standard but it is you're right the military does do that shit all the time as a matter of fact uh the army reserve just pulled some bullshit this week um uh (laughs) where actually i think it was it was last week when the memo came out but um so the army reserve had as is the case every year published their recruitment standards uh are the numbers that they want to hit their goal for uh fiscal 23 which started in october and then sometime last week they changed they brought the number down because they knew they weren't going to meet their goal so and i guess hoping nobody would notice i don't know what the fuck is going on i'm curious to see because it was like a seven point spread like it was like it was significant um let me see almost thirteen thousand person different which is you know, they put their projections, mm. um, their goals out for the year. And I I mean, that's deceitful, right? To change that number, to then be able to go out publicly and be like, we're good. We met our numbers. Yeah. No, you changed your numbers. You did not meet the numbers that you set a year, almost a year ago to meet. And, and, once again, that's like, where is the leadership? And where is sort of, what do you learn when you go in the military, the army, you learn the army values. Mm. And it's like, what are you seeing from leaders at the top? Definitely not accountability, right? No accountability, no honor, integrity. Really, you're going to change those numbers so you can go out and lie to the American public and then tell an E4 that and lecture them about integrity and honor Mm. and the way Mm. to live their life. Yeah. Like yeah, people, that's uh, why recruitment numbers, that's one of the many reasons that recruitment mm. is suffering is because the American people, the way social media is today, they're seeing that exact example that you just made about shifting the numbers. They see that and they say, how how is that person, that leader, how am I going to trust that person when they tell me to go run into battle? Do I really want to follow what that guy's telling me when there's a double standard and he gets to live by one set of rules and I have to live by another? That's not leadership. That's failed leadership. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. I mean, big time. It's, it is, uh, it, it would be like if your doctor said, if he like marginalized how bad your condition was. Like, yeah, you got cancer, but don't worry about it. It'll be it. good. You It'll don't need to fine. do anything. Yeah. Like, no, he cut it out, dude. Like, literally, physically cut this out of my body, please. Um, yeah. But you can't, you know, if you, if the uh, uh, the institution or, or the person that controls the particular junction of the institution that diagnoses problems is not honest, then problems just get worse. Right? Well, I, I think that that is a big part of the problem. Leaders aren't honest mm. with problems. And when people actually come with solutions, it's, no, we know – I don't want to have to tell my boss that. So no, nope, mm. we're just going to Well, part of that like is part of the fine. system though, right? It's like if you if you identify a problem that needs to be addressed, I feel like people 05 and above feel, think that that's going to be a bad OER for them. Yeah. It's going to be a bad bullet point on their on their uh, evaluation report. And maybe it will be, right? It will be, maybe, but it's like that's something that's a point I like to make about today's generals mm. is that America, like the World War II generals are a thing of the past. That's Mm. not what generals are today. Generals today are people who have outlasted, people who were like, I'm done with this, I'm getting out. So too many military leaders today fail up, and but they keep their mouth shut and they don't cause waves and then they don't get that bad OER block. Mm -hmm. So they're still a contender for those higher ranks. and so you don't have to be the best, smartest, strategic leader to be a general. You now have to outlast people. That's how you make it up 
to the top. But you know, um, there are some certainly, yeah. I, well, maybe I don't know about that. There are a few. Um, this this is the same way things work in the intelligence community as well. People are starting to fail upwards. It used to be that, uh, aside from the DEA, I guess. Um, well, OG DEA was pretty brutal, but the current iteration of the DEA and the FBI, it's like, you've got one weird mark on your record. You're not going to be working here. Right. Which seems, that seems kind of stupid to me. Right. So the first special forces units in the United States were like political dissidents and lunatics, like not, not full blown criminals. We're not dirty dozen uh, here, but they didn't exactly, they didn't do the same thing that the CIA did in the uh the oss i guess in the 40s and 50s which is to say just go to princeton and harvard and pick people out who had good quote-unquote good families or whatever no they looked for lunatics like people that had good navigation and math skills but didn't mind living in the moral gray area i guess um and now we're we're uh we're getting away from that it's like it, it, it is really just the result of safetyism, right? Like risk averse policies. I don't know what, like being risk averse with a kinetic military. How does that make sense? It doesn't make any well, sense to me. Yeah. Look at what happened with the fall of Afghanistan, the mm -hmm. fall of Kabul. Well, that wasn't chaotic though. <laughs> Says John Kirby. Yeah. That guy, what a fucking clown. Um, yeah, it's, like the thing that makes us really good at what we do is violence of action, right? Like you can't, I, I, you, you can train people really well, but without the initiative and the instinct to act immediately. What, what did, um, was it Patton that used to say that a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan mm -hmm. tomorrow or some shit like that? It's like, th this has been the standard in combat for forever. That I believe that is actually in the blue book, right? The old infantry handbook from the, uh, I think it's from the 17th century or some shit. Um, this idea that overwhelming force now is pretty effective. Let's just say that. Um, I, I just don't understand why we think this is going to work or maybe they don't care that it's going to work. I mean, it's, it does seem like to your point before that a lot of these guys are just angling for the next job and, Hopefully I'll get mine before the whole thing crumbles. You know what I mean? Well, I think a lot of, if it is not an immediate threat, if it's not like Russian missiles launched at Ukraine, mm. um, there a lot of officials at the Pentagon aren't interested. Um, because if you raise the alarm bells about... Um, the recruitment and retention problems in the military, that was something that happens down the road. It's like, okay, yes, we are on uh, an unhealthy trajectory in terms of our numbers mm. and uh, outlook, but I'm going to be out of this job in a year and a half, so that's the next person's problem. Mm. And I do think that that's a significant problem. They are so like the Pentagon operates like a fire station where there's always the the sirens always going off to run to a fire. Mm -hmm. It like is very chaotic and like it's just trying to put out fires here and there. There's no sort of like long term uh there may be like on paper long term mm -hmm. planning, but is it accurate in terms of um handling those long term problems? <laughs> Maybe not. It could be just a symptom of our system. I mean we have a transition of power every four years and people have different agendas and goals, right? Yeah, that's what I always say, like is going to be our downfall is the fact that the United States military operates off a two to four year political cycle. Mm. China operates off a 20, 50, 100 year plan. That's like, that's their outlook goals. So what you're saying is we should elect a dictator for life then, like Augustus Caesar or something. I did not say that. <laughs> uh, no, but I think that exactly what I said in terms of those alarm bells for the military mm -hmm. and the problems that exist internally are going, the alarm is going off right now. Mm. And if those problems are not addressed sort of immediately with the next Republican administration mm. in 2024, if that happens, we are going to see some 
I think, very serious problems because uh, the recruitment numbers, the Mm -hmm. retention problems are only going to get worse. And I think American society forgets today that the all-volunteer force is not a guarantee. That's not... Uh, the all-volunteer force has only been around since 1979. Mm. And there is no guarantee. The reason the selective service, the reason people still 18 to 26 have to sign up for the selective service today, all men, is because they can institute a draft. And I guess what happens when we aren't meeting those recruitment numbers and China decides to invade Taiwan? Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, I I think... uh... The recruitment numbers are what they are, but the the larger issue is downstream, and that is that these countries that we have adversarial relationships with are going to start. That that I seems unlikely they'll attack mainland U.S., but certainly anything that we're involved in or a protectorate, they're going to start like they're, it's they're wolves, right? They they see that the. Uh, uh, the hen house door is open. I guess we're not when when America's when America is strong, the world seems to be a little bit better, right? I mean, it depends. Some we fuck up a lot of stuff too. Uh, most of the problems we're dealing with now actually we created. So, you know, you can make an argument that way, but uh, it certainly doesn't help the world or the West that we're acting like a bunch of bitches right now. I think that uh, in terms of like a hot war. With China, I think China is, like, very interested, obviously, in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I think it's the United States that is very interested in um, ensuring that doesn't happen in terms of, like, actual warfare. Mm -hmm. I think that there's cyber stuff going on right now. There's, like, infrastructure. Sure, yeah. All of that type of, like is you know right now moving forward when people talk about world war three in the mindset of world war two mm. i don't think they would look like the exact same thing maybe could it happen because of some like very hot heads <laughs> absolutely mm. but i think that um wars are going to be fought differently and it's with some of those things that are sort of more behind the scenes um with sabotage and cyber and um economy the economy and all of that so i think it'll look a little bit different um but obviously the taiwan thing and the united states stance on that um could change some things yeah there's a good book about this um fifth generation warfare i think it's called the citizen's guide to fifth generation warfare by boone cutler and michael flynn uh if you haven't read it it's it's a pretty good read um but yeah it's like uh this has been going on when I was when I did my master's ten years ago or some shit. I don't remember how long ago it was, but um, you know we were doing research into cyber attacks from foreign countries, and China was launching something like thirty five hundred individual cyber attacks against U.S. properties a year, right? Mm-hmm. Thirty five hundred distinct attacks per year, which is to say ten a day, ten every single fucking day. Um, using cutouts all over the place and they targeted uh, infrastructure. They targeted government intelligence. They targeted uh, uh, even private company intellectual property and stuff like that. So it was like multifaceted trying to destabilize our economy, trying to glean information, trying to, um, and, and to be honest, <clears throat> we may be in the, uh, in, in what's, what, what I guess could most aptly be described as like a digital arms race at this point right? Trying to figure out how to protect our shit and how to develop new shit. I mean, yeah, we, we've made a couple of moves in the past couple of years. Um, Arizona and Ohio are going to have microprocessing plants within the next two or three years. So we'll see how much we care about Taiwan after that, right? I know technically we have a contract or a treaty with them that we're supposed to protect them, but the only reason we really get involved is because 95% of the world's microprocessors come from that little island, right? Um, well, and also, like, politicians are addicted to war oh, and yeah. the business of yeah. war. Well, it's profitable, right? Very. Um, and it's it, it seems like um, maybe it's just a recency bias because of the GWAT and shit, but 
people seem to think that the right side of the aisle is more prone to be involved in war than the left, but that's not historically been the case, right? Like Woodrow Wilson, Democrat, World War One, FDR, and uh, his predecessor were both Democrats in World War Two, Vietnam. I guess technically started with um, with Eisenhower, but JFK and LBJ are the ones that really made it big, right? I guess when JFK died, there were 16,000 people there. By the time LBJ got there, there were 350,000 or something. Um, and it wasn't until relatively recently, even Clinton bombed the fuck out of everybody he can get his hands on. Now, the, <clears throat> the Balkan stuff, I think we did a pretty decent job there. That was a good mission. That, that might be the last good mission we've actually had as a, as a military, but, um, there seems to be this, like the, this trope of the Republican war hawk, but it's just historically has not been the case, right? It's, it's well, most recently, like, as you look, especially with Ukraine, mm. it's, and I guess more towards the end of Afghanistan, mm. it's the exact opposite. It's Democrats would like every single dollar the United States has to get sent to Ukraine and they're willing to, you know, go to nuclear war over it. And it's it's just interesting that they used to have this brunt of they're the party of peace and they yeah, yeah. are anti-war. And it's but like, it's no, laughable. you guys are not. Like, there, you there's nothing, war. The, the entire 20th century is marked by wars begun by leftists. Yes. Like the entire, and not just American leftists, but Russia and all of their micro wars across the country as well. And then Mao and all of his micro wars across the country. Um, it's interesting to me because, you know, late 19th century, we're coming out of uh, Monroe Doctrine, right? Which is, it made it even difficult to get into World War One in the first place. Like the American public just had no t tolerance for that bullshit. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to be... They didn't want to send American young men to go solve somebody else's problems, I guess. Um, and they were right. We and should, we should, in no way should we have been involved in World War One. Yeah. World War Two, you know, if people are starting to fucking genocide others, yeah, but you the American do people were not interested in World War Two. They were yeah. done because of World <clears throat> War One until Pearl yeah. Harbor, and but they saw it coming even before. Um, I think. Oh no, that's uh, yeah, that's accurate. They had about two weeks' notice. It seems like that somebody, something on the either Alaska or World War or uh, or uh, well, they started the yeah. first peacetime draft mm. uh, before Pearl Harbor's happened. Yeah, so I think they yeah. knew like it was coming. Yeah, some yeah, it's sort weird. of involvement, whether they got attacked or not. Yeah, it's weird. I, it's to your earlier point from the beginning of the show. There's a giant disconnect between people in charge and what's actually happening in reality. Um, and it's because their goals aren't focused on solving problems in reality. Their goals are to self-promote or even in a broader sense, protect the institution of aristocratic power. I think that's something as well. You, if you yeah. look through history uh, at uh, nobility, aristocracies, things like that, they will you know, argue amongst themselves quite a bit. But at the end of the day, they'll protect the institution of aristocracy against the plebs first, just to, like because that power is what really matters to them. And you're seeing it again today, all these strange bedfellows, uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats on this whole like globalist agenda. It's very bizarre to me that uh, people get away with this stuff. It, I guess what's bizarre to me is that the average populist American leftist or conservative just doesn't see it happening. Yes, because they're not feeling the pain yet. Well, they may be now with the economy, but. But. I don't know. Really? Are they going to are they going to vote Joe Biden out of office? Mm. Because when you start feeling the pain, you don't start caring mm. about, well, I don't like the other guy. You say, does that other guy make my life better? Right. And so very curious to see how 2024 plays out, because when I say they're not feeling the pain yet, they're not feeling the pain yet if they're still voting for mm -hmm. a guy who has policies that creates the mess that our nation's in now. Yeah. Well, the re most recent polling from this week shows that he's in big trouble, but I don't know how much I trust in any of these polls, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, his yeah, approval rating is at 36%, I think. And... uh 
in a head-to-head matchup, I think Trump wins by seven right now. But I don't – I mean, who knows, right? These polls are always wrong. Yeah, I think that there's so much time and so much could happen between mm. now and then. That yeah, Trump's got plenty of time to say some dumb shit, which he is wont to do. Well, um, they're definitely coming after him. Oh, yeah. Um, to try to prevent that from happening. I just uh, – you know. It's a good rule of thumb that um, if institutional power is trying to silence someone, you, you should listen to what they're saying more more intently than you would have previously. Well, right? it, it's just like uh, I I think what it comes down to is well, yes, uh, absolutely. If you're going after a person and trying to silence what they said, then it's like maybe everybody mm. should pay attention to what that person's saying. But also, it's a pretty like easy like thing to think about in terms of was my life better under president trump or was my life better under president biden Mm -hmm. the economy was booming like people were like enjoying life and america as it should be and what's happening today look at interest rates under joe biden uh look at the price of groceries Look at the wars we are now involved in. Um, We're sending money to Ukraine, but we're not taking care of this problems here in America. Hundreds of thousands of people die a year because of drug overdoses, because of the southern border. And it's just like, it's pretty easy. It's like, which was your life better before? Or is it life, is your life better now? Yeah. Like look at crime. Like crime is out of control. And it's pretty easy, like, where to point why that crime is happening. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, I mean, that it was true, I guess. Maybe they didn't see the effects that they do now from leftist bullshit. But it was uh, – hopefully this will, this will wake people up a little bit. Because it was the same before um, – or not before, I guess, but during Trump. So, so since, I guess, what year, 2015 – since 2015, uh, Soros has funded uh, 280 judge and DA yeah. races across the country, it's a big give problem. or take. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big problem. That's a big right? problem. A guy who's like on record saying he wants to destroy the country is funding political races for criminal justice operators across the country. That seems pretty bizarre to me that we would just let that happen. I know. And especially when people see like what the outcome is with Mm -hmm. those judges and and the way that um, there's just this two-tier justice system and criminals are just let out, repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at like any metropolitan city and the crime that exists and people who end up committing whatever acts and violent acts and then you look at their record and things that they have done and you're like how is this person on the street today um and i'm i'm just like the social media side of um going after people who defend themselves Mm. it's like they've criminalized self-defense and they've made the aggressors the victim and that is about as backward as you can get in society when people have to think twice about defending themselves and defending their families and the people they're around because they're concerned about are they going to get charged with a crime. Mm. And that's not the American way. That's not the way this country was set up. And um, but like you said, I think it's like so political with mm. some of these billionaires pushing money into the justice system. Yeah, it's fucked. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> the good news is there's uh, a lot of folks uh, like ourselves, I guess, your family, your husband, who are kind of prepared if shit goes sideways. So I guess we'll see what happens. What are you doing these days now that you're uh, out of the military? What do you do? So I'm a writer. I've got a new book coming out. I'm not going to talk much about it yet. Um and I still work in the world of communications. Mm. That's a very security, cagey defense. answer. You don't yeah. want to get more specific than that? No. What's your question? What do you do? I do a lot of advising in the national mm. security and defense world mm. with communications type work. Okay. 
And uh, you got a book out already that from a couple years back, right? Called Danger Close. I do. It's called Danger Close. It's a story about my service. Mm. So it walks you through um, why I joined the military, all of my training, and then into my Iraq and Afghanistan deployments as a Kiowa pilot. And uh, how did that go, that whole book writing process? How was it for you? So I wrote the book myself. Mm. I was kind of like hesitant to write a book. When you write a memoir, it's kind of like writing a diary and giving it to the world. And yeah. so it's kind of yeah. intimidating. Uh, but at the same time, for me, it was very therapeutic, you could say, to like go back and revisit mm -hmm. a lot of the stories and my combat experiences and uh, put it down on paper. I always tell veterans, like, write your stories down. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, writing it on paper, your computer, writing a book. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, it's like a very good healing process to like get it all out and sort of revisit it. Uh, so that was uh, pretty, like I, I had a good experience in that sense. But writing the book itself was hard. I was my first book. Mm -hmm. So didn't have any experience writing a book, but learned a lot. And uh, it was like, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon and I always say writing the book was harder. So. <laughs> What's the Marine Corps Marathon? The Marine Corps Marathon, it's a marathon in Washington, D.C. in the fall. October. It, is it like more difficult than the normal marathon? No, I, w I, don't, I mean, it's the only one I've ever ran, mm -hmm. but I don't think so. Interesting. I didn't know they did that. Yep. Um, they do like to abuse themselves quite a bit. So it makes <laughs> sense, I guess. I mean, it's a very like if you're going to run a marathon, it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You go, you run through like all of the monuments and oh, it's like cool, sightseeing. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. see everything and there's lots of like wounded warriors mm. like start in the front and it's it's just like a really cool experience and you like just people push come them out, out to watch it so you can win right competitive i did not win no oh, no I, mean. <laughs> I finished yeah that's good i mean i yeah i might do that I, the re i hate running because it's fucking boring but i guess if i it was mm, like a check the block thing yeah. i like running for like you know get out and do it um but i'm not gonna i'm probably done I've run like a 10 miler maybe now, but I'm not going to run them. I might be a sociopath because I ride a Peloton and just stare at a dot on the wall for an hour. You don't listen to the No, no, person? I can't. I don't like being told what to do. I've never done the Peloton. It's good. I mean, I, I do free ride and I just put a time in and I watch my heart rate and shit. I don't really give a shit about. In silence, like no music, no nothing? Um, I'll, It depends. I, I usually listen to audiobooks when I'm writing, mm. but that's not... It doesn't, it still sucks. Yeah. Right. Um, I hate it, actually. I, I learned some stuff from Cam Haynes, though. He, like, uh, um, some stuff I was already doing just because running is so boring, but uh, he does math in his head. It's like trying to figure out how long it's going to take him to do something while in the process. So you're kind of breaking the process down and compartmentalizing certain things while also keeping yourself distracted and also staying on goal. So hmm. I like doing that. See, I feel like I could, if I was like riding the bike mm. for however long you said you are, I could do it in silence. I like it. Like it like clears my head. Some people have to listen to music and like yeah. read an audiobook, but like. I could do it in silence. Yeah. But the problem is it wouldn't be silent. I would hear my fucking dog breathing the whole time because <laughs> he's a Boston Do you have a bulldog? Terrier. I have a bulldog. I have a Boston Terrier. And so they are so loud. Yeah. It's ridiculous. He's, he, he, I. I feel bad because sometimes it fe it seems like he's gasping for air, but uh, like in the middle of the night, all of a sudden he'll just snort like a fucking full three second. I'm like, oh my God, but he's he still asleep. asleep so I guess he didn't care. Yeah. My dog is so, if I'm ever talking on the phone and my dog is sleeping there, she snores so badly. Is it an English bulldog? It's an English. Oh, just a fat piece of shit, huh? She is so fat and <laughs> she lays there and like my husband walks her in the morning mm -hmm. and she hates it like she wants to lay there and do nothing just get her a wagon and, and drag her around I we guess. have a wagon she <laughs> she doesn't like it though yeah yeah that's really funny um all right well look we're coming to the end of the show here uh thank you for coming today it's been a good conversation it's nice to hear that we're not all crazy and that all this stupid shit that goes on and the no, military it, it and the defense is department is, is going nuts. Um, 
hopefully it'll start turning around soon if I we hope. can get some new leadership. But, you know, what are you going to do, I guess? Uh, and, and the new book, what, what are we looking at time-wise here? I do not. I mean, I don't know yet. Six months to a year, maybe. Okay. Well, we'll have you back when it comes out. Okay, we'll talk about awesome. that book. Uh, thank you for coming today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. Anytime. Great to talk to you. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill